The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com. This is Barron's Live. Each weekday, we bring you live conversations from our newsrooms about what's moving the market right now. On this podcast, we take you inside those conversations, the stories, the ideas, and the stocks to watch so you can invest smarter. Now, let's dial in. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Barron's Live, our weekly webcast and podcast. I'm Lauren Rublin, Senior Managing Editor of Barron's. Thanks for joining us today for a look at the Fed and monetary policy and fixed income and stocks. That's a lot to cover in one call, but we've got two great guests on the line to do the job. Barron's Deputy Editor, Ben Levison, and Sonal Desai, Chief Investment Officer of Franklin Templeton Fixed Income and a Portfolio Manager at the firm. Sonal is also a member of the Barron's Roundtable. It is hard for me to convey on the printed page or the digital page her nuanced view of policy and markets. So after listening to her speak at the roundtable, I decided to invite her to continue the conversation with us today. I think you'll enjoy it. Welcome, Ben and Sonal. It is great to have you both on Barron's Live today. Hi, Lauren. Hi, Lauren. Great to be here. A pleasure. Thank you so much. So, so I watched, as did most of us, Fed Chair Jay Powell's interview on 60 Minutes last night, and I thought I would start there. I think we cannot help but conclude he is the most patient man on Wall Street or in Washington. He basically told the market, forget about a March rate cut, as the Fed wants to get even more comfortable with the notion that inflation is coming down. So two questions arise from this, and I'm wondering what your thoughts are. Do you think Powell is following the right policy course in delaying interest rate cuts? And when do you expect that the Fed might pivot and begin cutting rates? So, you know, I would start off by saying one thing. If Powell is patient, but Powell makes missteps, if he had not you know, ignited that rally at the end of last year in December, I think markets perhaps wouldn't have gotten as far over their skis as they did. So essentially, let's take let's take stock. We're looking at an economic outlook that is definitely pretty robust. You know, we've got two and a half percent growth through last year. And you know, ongoing data confirms this. You know, if I look at uh, if I look at the labor market, if you look at this morning's ISM, you know, things are looking pretty good. And so we look at this on the one hand, and on the other, you've got the fact that inflation has come down a lot. And so the market really took away from December that Powell was Powell and the Fed were only going to look at inflation. Inflation was going to come down and we were going to cut massively. So I think what we've seen last week after the Fed press conference, and then even more so during the 60 Minutes call, was Powell really trying to regain ground to try and convince the markets that, you know, March really isn't where it's going to happen. They've said 75 basis points. And I think they're going to give us 75 basis points. I said that during the round table. In fact, my preference would have been 50, but they talked about 75. I'll believe them. 
75 basis points in the in the second half of the year rather than starting as quickly as March. Does and it this, really matter if we know we're getting 75? Does it really matter what the timing is? It does. It does, actually. Now, so that's a, that's a good point, because here's the thing. Inflation is coming down, but the economy is really healthy. That means that Powell and the Fed can afford to wait a little to make sure that lower inflation is really embedded. I mean, let's let's take a step back. Inflation has come down a lot from eight, nine, all the way down to where we are today, which is still above three on the CPI. Now, we have to still come down. And definitely, if you look at six month annualized, it's looking good. But December already tells you that progress could be uneven. And we do need to get ourselves closer to that 2%, and it needs to look sustainable. And that's, in a very, that's a very important word. We've been here before in the 70s. Uh, I think very few people will remember that, but it happened. You know, we came down, the Fed started cutting, and then inflation picked up again. And that does a lot of damage. So I think if they can afford to wait, they are wiser to wait. There's no, so no reason to. So how worried should we be? Like today we saw the ISM services, the prices yeah. paid, part of that index yeah. went went up. We had the payrolls number last week where wages, um, average hourly earnings, that was up more than expected. How worried should we be that that's a, those are signs that inflation is starting to pick up a little bit again? So Ben, you know, I wouldn't go as far as saying that inflation looks like it's picking up, but I think it's a very healthy reminder that it's not coming down so quickly that we should start all getting ourselves uh, back, jumping back onto the liquidity train where the Fed starts cutting and, you know, stocks can rally and the bond market can take off. It's too soon for all of that. And keep in mind, you know, Lauren, when you said, why can't the Fed start cutting already in March? Well, in part, everything that has happened, we, the market, have done the Fed's job for them. Financial conditions are so easy today. It's it's as if we were back when uh, we had uh, Fed funds at one and a half, 1.75, all the way back to two years ago. So let's. I think that's something which must be concerning them because when the stock market is up, when your bond market's doing well, your 401k portfolio is doing well, house prices are actually not coming down substantially. People go out and spend. And when they spend, that ends up supporting prices. And that's just what people are doing. I yeah. I was very interested in your aside at the round table that and and again today that 50 basis points would be enough for you. And we didn't have a chance to circle back to that when the round table met on January 8th. But I am very curious about that comment. What's behind it? So what's behind it in part is my own inflation forecast, which is that by the end of the year, we're going to be at uh, uh, inflation, which is closer to 3%. So around between 25 and 3% rather than closer to 2%. So we're going to see inflation at that level. And then that takes you right into uh, this whole thing, which 
now people have started talking about, and Lauren, I've been talking about this for a year, neutral Fed funds. Let's yeah. stop for a second and just talk about what is neutral Fed funds. Well, supposing the economy isn't booming and so you don't have an inflation problem, you don't have an overheating problem, but you also don't have an economy which is stuttering, right? So you need to have monetary stimulus. What would this hypothetical Fed funds rate be, which would not get inflation up but would also not get the economy into recession. What would that level be? Now, when the Fed does its uh, SEP, its you know economic projections, when they do that, when you look three years out, you're pretty much looking at the neutral rate they're thinking about. They're still looking at about 2.5%. So let's break that down. What does 2.5% mean? It means 2% inflation with a half a percent real rate, which is what we saw for most of that half percent real rate was what we saw for most of the post-global financial crisis period. But we're in a new environment. We're like how we were before the global financial crisis. So starting from the 1950s, taking us all the way up to 2007. So that's a pretty long run piece. So it's that is the world we're living in. And if we're looking at that world, then I think the real rate actually needs to be closer to 2%. So 2% plus 2% means a neutral rate takes you to about 4 which is substantially higher than what the Fed thinks. And then over and above that, at the end of this year, I don't think that the Fed is where it needs to be. So from 5.25, which is where we are today, you could take it to 4.75%. And actually, that's not that's a little restrictive, but not enormously restrictive. Sorry, that's a lot of numbers I threw out there. So we're assuming three cuts this year. What do you see beyond that? What do you see in 2025? And where do you think rates will settle longer term? So that's the, the, so longer term is the other way of putting it. I'd say longer term, if the economy is not actually contracting, I think longer term Fed funds settles at around 4%, not at around 2.5%. Where are we today? We're at 5.25, 5.5. 75 basis points of cuts by the end of the year, you end up at 4.5, half-ish on Fed funds. The subsequent year, I do think the economy has a decent chance of slowing. So the Fed might decide that they want to stimulate the economy. And so they might take, give us another 100 basis, 75 to 100 basis points of cuts, which would take you sub 4%, which would actually be somewhat stimulative. Now, if you were an outright recession, they could cut all the way down to something like 3%. But that would be in stimulating territory, and it would be because they needed the economy to grow faster and unemployment had picked up and so on. If you think about the ultimate soft landing and you assume that really not very much happens to the unemployment rate, we get up to maybe 4%, not much more. Then I actually don't, I think this following year, we don't get more than 75 to 100 either. That's where I would see it. We'll have time to discuss that, I'm sure, as we go on. I wanted to ask you, before we go to Ben and look at this week's earnings, why do people seem to feel so badly about the economy and feel anxious about the backdrop? We have a, a booming economy, a great labor market. What's to worry about? You know, it's not so much worry. I think one of the things which is really hurting uh, confidence, consumer confidence, uh, you know, you don't always see it in the numbers, but the reality is you have inflation and then you have the price level, right? And 
the people who are most impacted by the massive bout of inflation we've seen over the last two years are also going to be in the lower quartiles of income. They end up being impacted a lot by actual price levels because while wages have gone up, they have not necessarily kept up with inflation. And we haven't had outright deflation. So people's grocery cart is more expensive. And so that continues to have a lingering impact. We saw this actually during the Volcker regime at the end of the great inflation. It took a while for the hangover from the inflation to fade. And maybe as we get further into this year and inflation remains low, some of that PTSD will slowly start going away. That's a good way of saying it. So I want to switch to Ben for a moment and talk about some of the companies reporting earnings this week. So, But Sonal, I have so many more questions for you. So stand by. I will be back. Ben, I know you've had a little technical trouble hearing us. Can you hear us now? I can hear you. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. So since okay, I good. can, tell me about Eli Lilly, one of the hottest stocks in the market. It's reporting earnings on Tuesday. Yeah, I mean, Eli Lilly is incredible. It's up. Uh, it's almost doubled uh, over the past year. And actually, with today's move, um, this is a day before earnings, which are due tomorrow. Uh, the stock is up um, 4% today. So it's probably doubled over the last year. Um, and, and so much of this is around the uh, obesity drugs that uh, um, that it is launching uh, start off as drugs to treat uh, diabetes, but it also turns out that they can help people lose weight. Um, and so, uh, you know, I was looking at some of the research that's out there, you know, the company is supposed to, you know, report a profit of 231 a share that'd be up from 209 revenue is growing a lot, it's supposed to be 8.9 billion up from 7.3. Um, but their BMO calls this the, um, the most consequential guide in recent memory. Um, this could be the guidance for fiscal year 24. Um, and people really want to hear how uh, they have uh, some of the new obesity drugs that hit the market are doing there was uh, I'm going to pronounce this wrong, but Zepbound, which uh, uh, was approved on November 8th, and they want to see Manjaro continue to grow as well. And so what it says is going to be really the big thing. Um, BMO is modeling for uh, total revenues for 2024 of about $40.6 billion. That'd be up from $38. Um, their previous um, estimate of 30, uh, $38 billion. And they also see operating um uh, they, they see earnings going up. Um, so it's going to really be about this guide. People want to see that these drugs are getting picked up a lot in many ways on with NVIDIA and its chips is that each quarter people want to see that not only that they're, uh, the, the, the chips for AI are getting bought, but that it's translating into even more chips. And I think that's what people want to see from Eli Lilly, that not only has the sales for these are growing, but they're growing even more than people thought. Um, so this guidance is going to be very, very important. So that makes sense. And and what a what a stock it's been. Tell us about Walt Disney. It's doing a little bit better, but it, it's been in a slump for quite some time. The company yeah. reports on Wednesday. Yeah, I mean, Disney's been been tough. Um, you know, it has uh, it was kind of seen as this double winner. Um uh, during the pandemic that it had the stream business that was growing so fast. And as soon as uh, uh, the economy was able to reopen, people were going to go back to the movies. But it turned out that that 
quite wasn't quite the case that the people going back to the movies hasn't been great for Disney. Um, you know, the Marvel movies have been disappointing. Pixar has been kind of disappointing. And at the same time, um, you just haven't been able to grow the uh, uh, the streaming business as fast. Um, and so it's really caused a lot of problems. Bob, Bob Iger has come back. Um, but uh, the, the, there's just a lot of negative talk right now of surrounding Disney. Um, it has a problem with, you know, the uh, the cable channels aren't doing as well. Sports is very expensive, but ESPN isn't producing the revenues like it, like the revenue like it used to. Um, what I do find interesting is though the stock is down over the past 12 months, uh, it's down about 12%. Um, it has done better um, recently. It's up 14% over the past three months. Um, and I look at the chart and it looks it's at this point where if it can deliver on the earnings, if they could start talking a little more positively about what's going to come, there's actually a good chance for a pretty nice breakout here. Barron's was positive on the stock about uh, a little more than three months ago. Um, we've been right so far, but of course, we're not doing this as a multi-month call. This is at least a year. Um, and so this this earnings call is going to be very, very important um, just to see that the business is starting, that these changes that have been put through by Iger um, are starting to uh, come through in the numbers. That sounds good. Hopefully things will, things will begin to improve. PepsiCo has had a rough 12 months and a rough three months, not rough really, it's just been flat. There's been little interest in consumer staple stocks. The company reports on Friday. What's the outlook there? No, it's it hasn't done much. It was it's only up two point five percent in the past three months. It's up one point one percent over the past twelve. Um, part of the, place. Yeah, I mean, part of that is that when you have a market that is going up as much as it did last year, uh, staples kind of are out of fashion. Um, you don't have real strong growth here. You have a little bit of growth, um, and you do have this snack business that sets it apart from uh, from Coca Cola, but. You also just don't have a ton going in its in its favor right now. Um, and, and JP Morgan is actually a little bit worried that um, the, the Pepsi kind of shot itself in the foot by providing guidance uh, after the third quarter. It rarely does that. Or, um, and it, it did that time. And they think that they've set it up that uh, they're not going to be able to raise that guidance. And if they can't raise it, they think the stock is going to kind of be stuck. It was why they actually downgraded the stock about oh, a little over a month ago, maybe a month and a half ago. Um, but they, they just think that it's going to have a hard time um, exceeding the goals. And that's what uh, investors are going to want to see from it. Um, so we'll have to, to wait and see. But it also does feel right now that, again, staples just aren't where people want to be. And that always is a problem for a company like Pepsi. So Ben, tech is where people want to be. And before we go on to other companies, I wanted to get your take on last week's incredible set of earnings from <laughs> big tech companies. What do you think the market is missing? What do you? Th what's your takeaway? Well, I mean, the, the thing that, I mean, first of all, I think we have to talk about Meta. Because um, Meta, I mean, that was an incredible move. I think it was the largest gain in market cap ever in the stock market. Uh, the stock was up something like twenty percent. Right, um, it makes Lily look like like nothing. <laughs> I mean, exactly. I mean, it, it it was an incredible move. Um, and, and I think part of it is that there's so much negative sentiment around Meta. Um, you know, there was a ton of negative sentiment heading into twenty twenty three. 
people say, what's Meta going to do? Well, you know what he did? He started to cut costs. Uh, Zuckerberg did. Um, and that was really enough uh, to sort of get people talking about the company again. He stopped being profitable with the spending um, and, you know, profits started to grow again. And that was what people wanted to see. And the stock had a great 2023. At the end of the year, though, I think people were saying, you know, what's it going to do next? Uh, he can't cut costs anymore, can he? Where's the, you know, where? Uh, I think we've lost Ben. Well, he, he. You there? Oh, no. Am I gone again? I can hear you. Yeah. Okay. No, I can hear you hear just you fine. You can't hear I know what Meta did, but you can tell us. Yeah. So, you know, so Meta went ahead and initiated a dividend and boy, was that unexpected, but it also, I think, tells investors that Zuckerberg is going to be more conscious about how the company is spending money and shareholder returns. And that was a huge move for the stock. Um, so it, it, it was spectacular. It jumped. And I have no idea what you do with a stock like that after a gain. I think if you're in it, you say thank you and you wait and you take your dividend and you're happy about it. If you're not in it, you, you kind of shake your head and say, oh my gosh, I wish I were. Um, but the, the, the other move that really caught my attention was Apple. The, the earnings came out. The market was not excited. The, the, the sentiment on Apple had been very, very bearish heading into this report. And it did. It opened down something around 4%. Um, and it looked like the bears were going to have their day and that uh, Apple's really going to just fall out of bed. Instead, it held the support that it has, um, that it's had for quite a while. Um, <laughs> first around, uh, um, it was around 180-ish um, that it found support. And this is an area where it's uh, it's had support for a while. But And then it bounced and it bounced hard. It bounced back above its 200-day moving average. It bounced back to where it had been tr trading almost the day before. If you look at the bars, it will finish the day down a little bit, something around the lines of 0. 0.4, 0.5%. But it had really erased most of that loss. And today it's up 1.3%. Um, so I, I think it's too soon for any for the bears to declare victory here. Um, that was really, there was a lot of buying that came in on, on that initial sell-off. Um, though I would also say, you know what? The bulls might be too early to clear victory too. The stock is right now trading between its 200 day and its 50 day. We're not sure what really matters for it. There's a lot of talk about, oh, sales are slowing. But on the other hand, margins could be increasing. How does that, uh, how do those set off against each other? And so it's going to be really important to watch Apple because really as Apple goes, so does the market. The market needs Apple, its biggest stock, to do pretty well. That's a good analysis and, and something I think a lot of people might have missed the back and forth in the stock. So I'm glad you brought that up. Thank you. Now I want to go back to Sonal. I have a few more questions and we may have more time for more stock spin. But I, I have to ask Sonal, I want to talk about the Fed shrinking its balance sheet. It's been doing so for many, many months, hoping to drain liquidity from the system. What are you watching from a balance sheet perspective? How long do you think this will go on? So, you know, they've given us, and by the way, Ben, I always feel so jealous. Everybody who's talking stocks has stories and <laughs> anything interesting to say. But anyhow, let's go back to the boring stuff. Let's talk about the Fed. Ben has great stories. <laughs> okay. So, so the Fed balance sheet, I think it's an underappreciated risk in the following sense. The Fed has stated that it wants to finish its balance sheet runoff. It, you know, in March, when I doubt we're getting a rate cut, but I think there's a fairly high probability that they will announce that announce a timetable for either slowing down the runoff 
or ending or even going as far as letting us know when they will conclude QT. Now, keep in mind, what did the Fed do? You know, it's been important just to give the, give your listeners a sense of where we are coming from. Prior to the global financial crisis, the Fed balance sheet was $800 billion. After the GFC, we went up to $4 trillion. Then we got COVID. And so this, you you know, fast forward all the way up to 2020, from 2007 to 2020. And over the course of COVID, we went from 4 trillion to about 9 trillion, just under 9 trillion. So this is an enormous balance sheet, right? And over the last couple of years, the Fed has year and a half or so, the Fed has been allowing runoff. It's not actively selling. It's just not renewing. It's not rebuying. It's allowing uh, treasuries, for example, that mature to run off. If it stops doing that while its balance sheet is still quite large, it means that the entire system stays quite liquid. What would the opposite mean? If the, each time the Fed allows a certain number of treasuries to run off, it means that the treasury has to finance more US treasuries in the market. And that, of course, is a problem when you're running budget deficits, which are as enormous as our budget deficits are. In economics, this is called fiscal dominance, uh, where essentially the treasury uh, has an impact on uh, on markets in this way. And uh, I think we are seeing that. It does result in a greater amount of liquidity in markets, which in turn, of course, plants the seeds for future asset price inflation and or goods price inflation. It's easier conditions. Now, anybody who says that the Fed balance sheet doesn't matter, and there are many people who say that, that it isn't directly impacted bank, bank lending, any of the above, I'd just ask them, then why did the Fed increase the balance sheet in the first place? <laughs> <laughs> you know, if it has no impact to reduce it, of course it has an impact. It increases the liquidity in the system. And uh, at the end of the day, this is something that we I will be watching it very carefully and the announcements, because at the back of my mind, if inflation hasn't fully come down, it does. There's a lingering possibility of additional asset price or goods price inflation. Do you ever wonder what the whole financial system would look like if all of these factors were eliminated and the markets simply ruled? Well, if the markets ruled, you would see the S&P, I, I swear to God, it would be half of where it is. It would be <laughs> much more. It would be, um, no, 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 you can't actually say that. It was not half. I have done absolutely no calculations. But if you actually look at the Fed's balance sheet and you look at the S&P, there's a direct movement in terms of asset price inflation and the liquidity which is provided to the system. And therefore, definitely it has an impact. And you have to wonder whether that's justified. I'm a fundamentals-driven investor. The extent to which the Fed, the monetary authority, inserts itself into mm -hmm. the financial market, supply and demand are no longer telling the story. In the bond market, we look at the shape of the yield curve right, to try and understand, is there going to be a future recession? The yield curve, if it's downward sloping, which means that short, short maturity bonds, one to two years, are yielding more 
than longer maturity bonds, 10 years, 30 years. So we, we are seeing that relative to 10 years right now. That is an indication of a future recession. This was only true when the Fed did not own close to a third of the market. You can see how that would have an impact, right? If you have somebody who owns a third of the market, that's important. If the Fed were to allow its quantitative tightening or the reduction of its balance sheet to end at the end of this year, right? So it continues and it actually is likely to end before that. At the end of this year, that would imply an additional 200 billion which would 200 to 300 billion, which would be taken up by the Fed. Because keep in mind, if the Fed is not allowing runoff, it has to come into the market to buy bonds or the balance sheet naturally contracts. Does that make sense? Yes. But I was going to say, going back to the fiscal dominance issue, does the Treasury's need for money eventually force the Fed to end the runoff? Well, you know, so that's the question right now. And I would argue that this, so pre-COVID, the Fed's balance sheet was at 4 trillion and that was considered sufficient despite being four times larger than it was pre-global financial crisis. It was definitely considered sufficient to maintain market stability, which is the argument given. Now, if it were to continue its current pace of runoff, at the end of the year, we would still be at a Fed balance sheet for around seven and a half trillion. And you have to ask, why would the Fed need such a large balance sheet? Are markets that much less stable today than they were just three years ago? And I, I would argue the answer is no which means, yes, it is to some extent, that's precisely what fiscal dominance is, in the sense, to some extent, uh, the Fed is doing something to allow treasuries to be funded at a slightly lower rate than they would be otherwise. By the way, in an emerging market, when that happens, for enough time, you end up with a crisis. <laughs> I am not suggesting the US is an emerging market, it's not. But uh, is it a serious issue? I'd say yes, it is. Yeah. At some stage, we do need to see some fiscal consolidation here. So let's spend a minute or two talking about the fixed income market, then we'll go to yes. listener questions. What do you see as the most attractive corners of that market today? So, you know, as in everything, to some extent, it's going to depend on people's risk tolerance. I do think that what we've seen over the last couple of years has restored some of the shine to fixed income in the sense that I know there, have been a, there was a terrible year where the first adjustment to higher rates came. But where we stand today, fixed income is actually playing that role of diversifier. And once the Fed you know, it becomes clearer what the Fed is doing. And this we're, we're leading into the last few months of this, the last few quarters, maybe, of this heightened uncertainty. Fixed income can go back to being boring. And that's something I really look forward to, as you know. <laughs> you know, so it, it will yield an income. It should be less volatile. It should act as ballast to a portfolio which has that, has those high octane stock stock elements, equity elements, fixed income is giving you income today. So which corners of fixed income make sense? It's still true that money markets are yielding a very attractive return. And people would ask, why should you extend duration and pick up volatility when money markets do give you this attractive return? I'd say do it in stages. The first step might be you go to something like an ultra short bond fund, which still gives you a high yield, but is very liquid. And, you know, you will have duration of, you know, have a maturity, maturity daily liquidity funds will have one to two years or under in terms of their maturity structure. And over the next 
three to six months, I would urge people to start moving into and locking in some duration. If I look at the taxable market, you know, so I'm not talking about munis, there's always reason to hold munis. And again, you have high yield munis and you have non-high yield munis, but that's for tax advantages. But then beyond that, I would say that it makes sense to move to things like high quality investment grade, for example. Again, pretty boring stuff, but you're getting very decent returns right now, about 5% or so on investment grade quality bonds, which will build in duration and it'll guarantee a certain return and with a very, very low rate of, uh, let's say, you know, defaults and so on and so forth. Now, if you do want to go a bit higher octane, there are things like bank loan, the bank loan market, which, you know, you get close to eight or 9% in terms of the yield right now. And I would briefly touch on the fact that emerging markets have been very unloved for a large part of the hiking period. But as we come to the end of hiking periods in countries like the US and the Euro area, emerging markets start looking more attractive. And while interest rates are still higher than most EM would like, we're certainly moving into an area where with rate cuts, they're in a better position. Lots of them have run very decent policies. And I'd say it's a good time to take a look at EM. Keep in mind, floating rate and emerging markets are higher risk higher risk than looking at investment grade, short duration, and so on. And so Sonal, can, can I ask a question about the yeah. market volatility? Because, yeah. I mean, maybe it's not as volatile as it looks, but like th the past it three is. days have seen the 10-year yield go oh, from yeah. 3.8, a low of 3.8 to a high of 4.2-ish yeah. today. Yeah. I mean, that, yeah. that seems like That's a massive crazy. move in three days. It's insane. But this is what I meant when I said that, you know, the volatility that we've seen from EM, sorry, from the, it's not an emerging market, I repeat, but the volatility <laughs> not, that we have seen. Not yet, seen, anyway. Not yet. And no, it's not going to be an EM. But the United States, uh, if you look at USTs, US Treasuries, the type of volatility we've seen, I firmly believe comes from the fact that we are still in a market which is desperately waiting for the Fed to pivot completely, but not to the pre-global financial crisis period, but to the pre-COVID period, which means cutting, slashing rates, right? Slashing rates and everyone's nervous of missing that rate slash cut, right? Cuts. And therefore you have people diving in and overextending and then pulling back out when the, if when the Fed disappoints, as it has done. Now, we've seen this for the better part of six months, right? We've seen massive moves. It's hard to believe that the high over, you know, over the last six months, even, we were close to 5% in 10-year treasuries. And we've we rallied all the way to 380. This, these are crazy moves. And this type of volatility is not desirable, for sure. But I think it's much more linked to a market which continues trying to second guess the Fed. So as soon as we get a little bit more clarity over there, and I think we're getting there, you know, they need once we don't get that rate cut in March, perhaps we settle a little bit. We're still pricing in. We were pricing in close to 175 basis points of rate cuts this year. 
at the end of last year. That move went to 150. Today, we're 100 to 125. They're getting much closer to that 75 the Fed says it wants to do. And as those two sets of numbers kind of come together, we can go back to the business of looking at the information on the table, recognizing the Fed has a path. And we haven't talked geopolitics at all. And that is the wild card. Everything I've talked about so far, it's my baseline. Geopolitics can create a wild card. Absent wild cards, I think that's when we stop seeing this level of volatility. We had a question, actually. I wanted to go to listener questions from Sprint, wanting to know how geopolitics and oil prices and the level of federal yeah. debt factor into your thoughts on different variables affecting the Fed. So, you know, they fa factor quite a bit. And here's the issue with geopolitics. In fact, uh, my 10-year yield trajectory was closer to 5%. And now I'm saying it's more at 425, 450, because I'm just trying to factor in things which are very difficult to factor in. If we had one of the following three issues, it would be bad. I'm talking about Putin making a speech in Kaliningrad, talking about potentially taking back Latvia or Estonia, which is crazy. I'm talking about a pro-democracy, anti-China win in, in Taiwan. And we continue to see certainly a China which is a little bit depressed and economically not doing so well. So we've got that set of issues. And the Middle East speaks for itself, you know, and it's expanding, not going down. Now, any one of these would be a factor. All three of them together mean that you have to somehow take into account that you've got three problematic areas at a time. The U.S. is going into an election where uh, there's no nice way to put it. Neither candidate is very loved. <laughs> you know, I think that's probably the kindest way to put that it. That was very nice. <laughs> you know, so and. So you're looking at a time where you've got a whole bunch of uncertainty together. And the way that factors into me is on a pure economic basis, I would simply say just a short duration, be very short, because, you know, the economic uh, uh, environment doesn't indicate that the Fed should loosen anytime soon. And I have disagreed with the Fed before, and sometimes I've been right and sometimes wrong. But today, we're actually neutral and going towards being slightly long because the combination of a dovish Fed and a global environment where you have uncertainty means you need to make sure that you don't have too much risk on your books. Because if you have one thing go wrong, you get risk aversion flows. So any risky assets you have, uh, are likely to sell off in that environment. It might be temporary, but it will happen. And so that's one thing which you factor in. Now, against the geopolitics, which would argue for not being short duration, you have that federal debt, which I think is a medium term issue. So I'm waiting for some of these issues, to the factors I just talked about, the elections, these three geopolitical points, to be somewhat resolved. And then you can come back to that medium-term issue, which is the federal debt, and more importantly, the deficit and the quantity of debt that the U.S. is issuing, which is absolutely enormous. At a time that we're at close to full employment, incre incredibly low unemployment, it is an absolute scandal that we have had the size of budget deficits that we've had over the last few years, and we appear to be set on continuing over the next few so that that would argue for higher long-term yields. So those are the two things which are playing off against each other. 
I'm so happy that you really are reticent to share your opinion. <laughs> that is precisely why I wanted to bring you on today. Oh, dear. So, I always forget we're not in a closed room, Lauren. Yeah, that's <laughs> quite all right. So we have a lot more questions, but we are unfortunately out of time. So, Sonal, we're going to have to have you back. Okay. But I it think, was lovely seeing, talking to you both. No, I think that wraps it up for today. I want to thank you. I want to thank Ben for sharing his stories with us. We will have more time for those in future weeks as well. And I want to thank our listeners for being with us today. If you want to listen again to this session, please visit barons.com slash live, or you can listen to the Barons Live podcast channels on Apple, Spotify, or Amazon. We will be back next week with more market talk and more investment insights. Until then, everyone stay well. Have a good week. The energy transition is a long and winding road, and it needs to be taken step by step. Learn more at SiemensEnergy.com.